my name's Alan, and uh, today is the last in our sermon series titled We Believe. And so for the past several weeks now, we've been uh, using the Apostles' Creed as the backdrop for our talks on Sunday morning. And uh, it's been really in, uh, enjoyable, pleasurable for me, and I hope you've enjoyed the journey as well. And so today we conclude uh, with our last sermon, with our last talk on We Believe. And if you'd like to grab your program and reach to the inside of that program, you can find a listening sheet. If you'd like to follow along, take notes, fill in the blanks, all of those kinds of things, it's available to do so. You can do that, and uh, there, there are pens available on the row in which you're seated, I, I hope. Just a couple of things. Um, as we've launched each of these sermons, we've used the Apostles' Creed as the introduction for our conversation, and so today we're going to do exactly the same. And so in just a couple of seconds here, the Apostles' Creed is going to appear behind me, and uh, we're going to read it together as we've done for the past several weeks, and uh, we'll continue to read this uh, on and off uh, as we continue into our future together. So we believe, and we begin with uh, the Apostles' Creed. And so uh, I'm going to say one, two, three, and then uh, if you'll lend your voices with great gusto, uh, just loud enough that I can hear you. It, it always makes me feel better. You don't have to yell. Just put, you know, words that you can actually hear yourself say, and then if you can hear you, yourself say them, then all together we'll be able to hear them all at once. And so one, two, three, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Today we are going to take the last two phrases of the Apostles' Creed and we're going to put them together because they actually belong together. When we talk about believing, it's not uncommon for conversations around coffee tables and dinner tables and in office offices, not just in America, but around the world, for people to have conversations about what happens to us when we die. Pretty common. Anybody ever had a conversation with anybody that you know about what happens to us when we die? Yeah, like a, a really regular conversation. It's just like everybody's curious. As a matter of fact, here's something that we all share in common. Each and every one of us is going to die. Uh, we're all, I hate to surprise you, we're all terminal. Some have a greater awareness of being terminal as we discover that our bodies are failing and perhaps disease has ravaged our bodies and so there's this heightened sense of being terminal and here's what I understand the older I get the greater my awareness of the fact that I'm terminal becomes there was a time when I was young and wasn't that long ago thank you that I felt uh, that uh, I was 
uh, absolutely invincible. I recognize now that I'm absolutely not. But it's a good thing as we navigate our way forward in terms of understanding what happens to us when we die. And the wonderful thing is that that central to Christianity is a conversation about what happens to us when we die. We actually talked about the essential connections in the cross, the crucifixion, and the resurrection because the cross, the crucifixion, and the resurrection inform us about our future life as well. And so we read the Apostles' Creed, and so simply it's we believe that we're resurrected from the dead and we experience life everlasting. So I want to talk about what that life everlasting looks like today, combining those two phrases. To take a biblical backdrop, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of the longest, clearest passages that we have in the New Testament regarding what happens to us when we die. I won't read the whole of the passage, but I am going to read a rather lengthy portion of the passage, beginning with verse 12 and reading through verse 26. I'm reading from the New International Version. If you want to follow along with me, you may do so. If you'd like to follow along on your favorite device, you can do so on version. Aren't you glad I got it right today? version. you can find that and uh, use that as an app. So beginning with verse 12, it says this, but... If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Now, talking to the Corinthians, there was apparently some conversation that was going on in the culture of that day that said simply this, and it would be the same kind of conversation that happens in coffee shops, around dinner tables, and in offices all around America and around the world. It continues, and that's simply this. There is no way that people are resurrected from the dead. Just absolutely no way. When you're dead, you're dead. You're done. It's all. It's over. So this is the kind of conversation that was happening in Corinth. We don't know the details of the conversation, but we do know this, that there was enough concern culturally that it was impacting the faith of the church, and so Paul addresses the connection of what happens to those who die. And so he simply says, you've heard some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. And so he continues, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. More than that, oh, excuse me, and if Christ has not been raised... Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. We dealt a little bit with, about that last week. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. You, you see, he's just going around in a circle. If Jesus is raised from the dead, people are raised from the dead. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, nobody's raised from the dead. If God didn't raise Jesus from the dead, we're all in trouble. Yeah, that, that's the circular nature of the conversation. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, 
Christ, the first fruits. Then when he comes to those who belonging to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, all authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Then the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Today I've got just a few minutes to talk to you about this, and so we'll start today sort of where we launched from last week, and simply from a different perspective, and this is in your program, if you're following along on your listening sheet, it's that first fill in the blank, and it's simply this, Paul and the early followers of Jesus and the historic Christian faith understand this one thing about the resurrection of Jesus. And he says it very clearly here in this passage when he says that Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection. You see, the resurrection of Jesus provides hope for all believers that we too will also have life after death. Life everlasting life everlasting because that Jesus has been raised from the dead we too also shall live there's a story that Michael Byrd tells in his book what Christians should believe and it's a, a book about the creed it's a, a wonderful book I would recommend the book Michael is an Australian theologian. I also would recommend Adam Hamilton's book, The Creed. Those are two incredibly wonderful books if you'd like to follow up and read a little bit more about the Apostles' Creed. Two incredibly great resources. But Michael Byrd, in his book, What Christians Should Believe Concerning the Creed, says this. He just simply tells a story, and he tells a story about a, a, an elderly woman named Merrill. And uh, the story is told is that uh, Merrill had, uh, had passed, and at her funeral, uh, her family and her many friends had come to pay their last respects. And everyone, as they, uh, this was an open casket funeral. If you've been there, it's where people take their, their uh, opportunity to go and uh, their last view of the body to say goodbye. And it seemed as though that everyone who had passed by the open casket to say their last goodbyes to Merrill left a little bit confused. Just left a little bit confused. Gradually, the guests returned to their seats and the service began. And as the service began, the minister stood and uh, began to say, thank you, dear friends, for coming. But before we begin our service today, I'm sure that many of you are wondering why our dear sister Merrill is holding a fork. I have to say, I've never been to a funeral service and looked into a casket, although I've been to many funeral services and looked into many caskets. I have yet to attend one of those services in which the deceased is holding a fork. And he said, before we begin, I'm sure that you're wondering why Sister Merrill has a fork in her hand. And she says, I, he says, I have to tell you that this was one of Merrill's last requests. He goes on to say that he had never seen this before, and uh, certainly I haven't either. And he says, Merrill's request was a strange one, but there was a reason for which Merrill had asked a fork to be placed in her hand. And so she tells the story. 
of being a little girl and spending time with her grandmother, and apparently she was a church-going little girl, and her grandmother was a church-going grandmother, and uh, her grandmother would take her to service, and if you grew up in the old days in particular circles, it was uncommon that you couldn't ev ever gather for church without having a meal. A friend of mine who uh, became a believer in his, adult, in his adult years said simply this. He said, I, I realized there were two things that were true in the church that I was raised in, and I, I've just become a reality to me now, and that is whenever God's people together are gathered together, there is fellowship and there's always food. Well, this is apparently the church that Merrill had grown up in with her grandmother, and after the service, there would be a wonderful, del delicious, like assortment of desserts. And so Merrill's grandmother would uh, uh, often remind Merrill when she had consumed one dessert, she would often remind Merle, don't give away your fork because there are more desserts that are on their way and the best are yet to come. Can I say to you that Merrill had a really great idea about carrying a fork with her into the grave? She understands something that's so true and so powerful and so real that I want each and every one of us to get deep inside of our hearts today, and that's simply this. No matter how good this life is, I want to tell you with great certainty, because Jesus has raised from the dead, we also will be raised from the dead, and I can say with certainty, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. It's the hoped-for, longed-for life that builds on this life into a, a future life. And so as we talk about what the best that is yet to come looks like, I want to talk to you about two more things today. And the first of those things is simply what happens to us after we die. And so the second, the second line there on your listening sheet says this, life everlasting includes a bodily resurrection. Life everlasting includes a bodily resurrection. Look at verses 51 and 52 in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's just read that together. I've already read it once, but let's just look at that together for just a second. Listen, I tell you a mystery. If you write in your Bibles and you have one circle, the word mystery. Listen, I tell you a mystery. So what we're getting ready to talk about this morning is there's a lot of mysterious stuff around life after death. A mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. The mystery is what happens to us when we die. First of all, Paul says this. He says, there, is, there are those who are faithful followers of Jesus who are presently dead, and he calls them those that are asleep. Asleep. He says those are asleep. N.T. Wright says uh, one way to describe this sleep is restful happiness. Restful happiness. He says the faithful dead are held firmly within the conscious love of God and the conscious presence of Jesus Christ while they await that day. What day? 
the day of the end, the day of the consummation of the age, the day in which Jesus will return again with a triumphant shout, and we will all be changed. So what happens to us after we die? Some people say that we go to heaven when we die, and, and I won't quibble over the word, but actually I would argue that that's not a word that's used very regularly in Scripture with regard to what happens to us when we die. You say, well, isn't that the hope for every believer to go to heaven? Well, yeah, but not so much. Yeah, but mm, not so much. Heaven is the place where God rules, God reigns, where his authority is exercised. If you read the book of Revelation, the first few chapters make it very, very clear that presently in heaven, the ongoing operations of God's kingdom are launched from the heavenlies. We don't know where that is, up, out, down, in, over. It's this space and place that's not too distant from ours because every now and again heaven breaks into earth with the authority and the rule and the power of God making himself known in transformation, in healing, in life, in victory. And oh, by the way, in presence as we weep and in presence as we mourn, in presence in our pain, these are the places where the kingdom of God make themselves known. So one way we could say is when we die, after we die, we go to sleep, a conscious presence before the Lord, and we could say we were in heaven, but to be more technical about it and to be more scriptural about it, there is this whole group of language throughout Old and New Testament, and simply as that is, we go to paradise. Now, I, I, can't, I can't dig into all of this, but it doesn't matter. Heaven, paradise, the real point is simply this. When we fall asleep with Christ, we are consciously present with him, with other saints who have also died and gone to be with him. And that should bring great comfort to those of you who have faithful followers of Jesus, friends, to know that they presently are in the presence of of the Lord, to be with him consciously aware and that they are in a restful state of happiness. So what happens when we die? We go to be in the presence of the Lord. So what happens, what, what's life after death? Rest in the presence of the Lord. But that's not the end. Paul says in this uh, passage, verses 51 and 52, he says that secondly, this sleep, secondly, this sleep is not our final state. He says in verse 52, we will be changed. And all he's saying there, he's using another way of saying we will be resurrected because Jesus has been resurrected. We also will be resurrected. Well, what does resurrection mean? Resurrection is life after life after death. Uh, N.T. Wright, one of his favorite phrases. Resurrection is life after life after death. Life after we've fallen asleep when we are awakened from that sleep and we are physically reunited with this body in a one-to-one -one relationship in which we will live forever as does Jesus now. 
You see, the resurrected Lord, the God-man who became the incarnate one, is still the God-man who sits at the right hand of the Father presently. His transformation is not a vaporous, wispy spirit, but he's an embodiment, so says the Scripture. A real, live, living, eternal, forever seated at the right hand of the Father. So, so what's resurrection? Uh, again, we borrow from N.T. Wright, and he says simply this, resurrection in the first century means exactly what it does today. It means that someone was physically, thoroughly dead, like, like kaput, six feet under, pushing up daisies. What, what are all the other euphemisms we use for people who are dead? Yeah, 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 I mean, we could add too. But, but physically, thoroughly dead. They understood exactly what we understand, that dead people are dead people. They are not simply surviving or, or simply that, that the thoroughly dead, resurrection means that someone physically thoroughly dead is becoming physically thoroughly alive again. Let me get my quote right. Not simply surviving or entering a purely spiritual world, whatever that might be. So a full resurrection. And the third thing we have to say about this bodily resurrection is what Paul says about it, and that is what he begins with. And he says simply this, this bodily resurrection is a mystery. Is a mystery. So what kind of mystery? Well, first of all, we don't know what a resurrection body looks like except by the example we have from Jesus. And so we say that is a physical, glorified, immortal body that cannot succumb to death or decay. That, that's, it's a physical, glorified, immortal body that cannot succumb to death or decay. So let's just talk really quick. I'm going to go through these really quickly. If you want them, I will give them to you. Just send me a, a, an email, alan at pearlandvineyard.org, and I'll send all of this stuff to you, uh, and you can, you can have it. But here, here's what it looks like. The resurrected body of Jesus simply is he was recognizable. Remember when he visited the disciples? Either by voice or by, or by vision. By voice or by vision, they recognized him. His body was recognizable. We know that he had flesh and bone. A, a, a transformed flesh and bone, but flesh and bone nonetheless, because the disciples were able to see him and to touch him. His words in Luke 24, Behold my hands, look at my feet, it's me. Handle me, see me, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones like you see. Yes, flesh and bones. Uh, we also know this. Jesus ate food, although it appears he didn't have to. He ate food. He ate food, uh, for instance, when Peter and the disciples were out fishing and, and Jesus is on the beach building a campfire. And uh, Peter looks up and he says, I think I recognize that guy. And then he says, oh, no, it's not only I recognize him, it is him. And he jumps out of the boat and he swims to the beach. And when he gets to the beach, gets what Jesus has, fish for breakfast. Fish for breakfast. Jesus ate food. He, his resurrected body was not only physical, it could also be touched and could be felt. And with that strangeness being physical, being touched, and being felt, he had an incredible capacity to appear behind locked doors to people who are afraid. These are some of the qualities and characteristics of resurrected bodies. 
And so, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42 through 44 summarizes what these, these resurrected bodies look like. And says, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead, the body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable and incorruptible. The body that is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. The body that is sown in weakness is raised in power. And the body that is sown naturally is raised as a spiritual body. As Jesus is, so we shall also be. Take that one in. Take that one in. As Jesus is, so we shall also be. What a beauty. What a joy. What a hope. And then we talk a little bit further about what resurrection bodies are like and this life ever after, this life everlasting is not lived in some vaporous somewhere out there. The Scripture declares to us that life everlasting is lived in a new creation. And I won't read that passage of Scripture for the sake of time, but simply this. The end will come when Jesus hands over the kingdom to his Father and after the end comes, or when he hands over these keys, every enemy will be destroyed. All dominion, all authority, and power. And he says the last thing to be destroyed is death in itself. So what happens in this life everlasting in new creation? Well, here's a couple of things that happen. Here's a couple of things that happen. First of all, in new creation, all oppositional forces to Jesus are destroyed. All oppositional forces to Jesus are destroyed, and the last of those destructed is death. And death is destroyed in his resurrection, and we being resurrected like he. Here's another way to say it from Michael Bird. He says, heaven and earth are changed into a new creation as we are resurrected. Heaven does not swallow up earth, and earth does not simply absorb heaven. The earth is, is transfigured into a heavenly plane of existence, and the dividing line between heaven and earth is obliterated. Heaven becomes earthly, and earth becomes heavenly. That last sentence says it all. Heaven becomes earthly, and the earth becomes heavenly. Close your eyes and listen to me as we close our time together to Revelation chapter 21. We read several weeks ago, and this is a continuation of what this new heaven and new earth look like from Revelation chapter 21, the words of John the Revelator. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no sea any longer. Heaven becomes earthly, and earth becomes heavenly. Remember that phrase, heaven becomes earthly, and earth becomes heavenly. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, here's what a new heaven and a new earth look like. Look. God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. 
they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And here's what it continues to look like. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. He continued and said, Write these words down, for they are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost in the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Life everlasting is promised to us because Jesus is the first fruit of resurrection. Life everlasting includes a bodily resurrection, which is totally, wonderfully mysterious and hope-filled. And life everlasting promises us a life in a new creation where heaven and earth and the gap in between disappears and earth becomes heavenly and heaven becomes earthly. And in that process, my final quote from Michael Bird today is simply this. In our resurrection bodies, we will do in the new creation what Adam and Eve were supposed to do in the Garden of Eden, reign over God's world, and enjoy God forever. What does resurrection life look like? Reigning over God's world and enjoying Him forever. And I'll add one other phrase. As we reign over God's world and we enjoy Him, we do not do it in isolation. We do it within a grand community of those faithful who went before us in death and those faithful who are also changed in a mysterious way at the final return of Christ. And we together rule and reign with Him. And this is the hope. This is the hope of all believers. This is the hope of all believers. So now you have a little bit of ammunition. The next time you're sitting at the coffee table, the next time you're eating a meal together, the next time office conversation about what happens, you can say, hey, I got some ideas about what happens when you die. And when you start telling them, people look at you like cross-eyed. They don't have any trouble believing in life after death. Lots of people hope for life after death. But we're not dreaming about vaporous, wispy participation in some nebulous future. We're dreaming about being real people, engaged with a real God, in a real place, where all is made right and everything is new, including us and all of creation. And that is the hope for all followers of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Stand with me. So, three questions. First question is really, really a pretty simple question. 
like a, you believe that story and it resonates within you. You say, man, that's a hope, that's a hope that I long for. That, that's something I really look forward to. You say, well, how do you get involved? How do you get engaged? How do you, how do you, how do you become included in that wonderful, glorious future? Well, it's really simple. You say yes to the invitation of Jesus' love right here, right now, today. You begin to participate in that life right now. That simply looks something like this. Sorry, thank you, please. Sorry, I've been doing my own thing, my own way, with, without any regard for what you're doing, God. Thank you that there's a hope awakened in me through the life, death, burial, res burial resurrection of Jesus that says that there's something bigger and better than my dreams. And the third way of simply is being available, accepting, and obedient is simply this. Jesus, would you fill me now as I give my life to follow you from this day forward? How do you get in? That, that, that's one of the ways. That's a way. Just say yes to Jesus' invitation of love. If you've never done that today, I'd invite you to do that. So there's a couple of other possibilities. Some of you are followers of Jesus, and you don't really have a, a lot of hope for your future. Man, this ought to charge you up with regard to hope for your future. This is what the Scripture tells us about what our future looks like. And so today, perhaps, it's your choice to choose to trust in Jesus and the hope that his resurrection brings. To choose to trust in Jesus and the hope his resurrection brings. Maybe that's a word you need to hear today. To choose to trust in Jesus and the hope that his resurrection brings. Because he lives, we also will live. And finally, you say, man, Alan, you got me. I'm on board. I'm choosing, to, I'm choosing to follow Jesus and say yes to his love. I'm choosing to, to say yes to uh, the hope that he brings. Well, let me just, just don't keep it to yourself. Just don't keep it to yourself. Choose to tell someone else about this life-transforming hope that's available not only to you, but to them as well. And you know how that happens? John reminded us, one conversation at a time. Maybe your, maybe your commitment today is to ask the Lord to give you one conversation every day with regard to sharing the hope that you have in Jesus.